Hey everyone, welcome to Good is in the Details. This is a bonus episode. I am your host, Gwendolyn Dalski, but for this episode, I'm not the host. I'm the one being interviewed by my good friend, Professor Lane at Gonzaga University. She is the ancient Greek scholar who has been on the show twice, and her class or her students are going over ethics and existentialism, and she asked me if I could talk about Simone de Beauvoir. Of course, I was happy to. I mean, Beauvoir is kind of my thing. So this is a lot of philosophy. If you're interested, if you're interested in existentialism, we talk about Nietzsche, there's Kierkegaard, Sartre, Camus, so much good stuff. And if you have any questions, feel free to get in touch. Good is in the details pod at gmail.com. If you want to become a patron of the show for as little as two bucks, you can go to patreon.com slash good is in the details. And you can also DM me on Instagram. I want to hear from you. What are you thinking about the show? How are you doing in this time of of coronavirus? We're going to do more episodes on that. My other episodes are on hold right now um, because I think we should address how we're all doing in this time. So hang on tight. Lots of philosophy right now for this bonus episode. I hope you enjoy. Here's the interview. Hi, Gwen. How are you doing? I am doing well. Thank you for inviting me to do this. I'm very excited. Yeah, me too. Um, and so why don't we just, you know, throw caution to win and get started. Uh, so let's do some nuts and bolts questions first uh, to kind of get that out of the way. And maybe that'll kind of help us get in to really talking about these ideas. So some students kind of just wanted a another way of getting into the existentialism of Simone de Beauvoir and so wanting to hear maybe a different way of thinking about what consciousness is, what the self is, what facticity and transcendence might be in terms explained by a different person. So could you kind of give a kind of cocktail party version of existentialism (laughs) for Simone de Beauvoir? You are definitely speaking my language. I can do that one. (laughs) So the facticity, um, you know, that term, it's probably highlighted in Microsoft Word, but what it means is the fact of one's existence. So the things that we cannot alter about our existence. So for example, I am five foot three. I'm a woman. I was born in a while back. <laughs> and, <laughs> um, and yes, we're, we're zoomers, right? <laughs> and um, these are the facts. These are the facts of my existence and they will not change. If I were to deny that they existed, then I would be living um, in bad faith or inauthentically. And that is something that she and Sartre agree on. And then there's the other side of it where the human being is also transcendence, which means that they are more than the facts of their existence. So for example, philosophy is a male dominated field. If I were to say, I can't study philosophy, I am just a woman, that would be bad faith. That would be yielding to the facts of my existence as a way to not interact in this. Now, if I were to say, I'm going to be in the NBA, that would also be bad faith because I would be pretending that the facts of my existence weren't there. So that, those are a couple of things about her notion or, well, I guess it's not exactly her notion because she and Sartre agree on that. Where I think she really opens up is radicalizing this notion of situation and embodiment. Those two things have been taken for granted really in the history of philosophy and the way that she delves into them are unique to the situation of woman. Yeah, and you're thinking here of the second sex, right? Yeah, and it comes through in her literature as well. 
Yeah, so, but just so you guys know, um, and if you're ever interested in, well, actually, you're all in quarantine now, so you might as well pick up uh, two of my favorite novels, which I would never have read if it hadn't been for Dr. Dalsky, uh, The Mandarins and All Men Are Mortal. Oh, uh, love both them both. Of those texts are just fabulous. So she's a great <laughs> literature writer as well as a philosopher. And so, yeah, you were speaking about the nature and the value of embodiment for Simone de Beauvoir. Would this, would this be something that really distinguishes her version of existentialism from, say, Nietzsche's? I think so. I think so. And, um, you know, what I noticed that in the email when you were talking or when you were, you know, going over some things that we'd be discussing, that Nietzsche came up and... Without doubt, she's influenced by Nietzsche. All the existentialists are. I happen to think, and I know it might sound a little bit strange, that she might have taken more of a cue from Kierkegaard. That doesn't mean that she's a secret theologian or anything like that, but just the way in which he approached existentialism through uh, through literature. And he would say subjectivity is the case in point. And I think that she may have... In her references to the seducer's diary, in reference to fear and trembling, I think in some ways she took more of a cue from him, maybe it's stylistically, but also the concept of ambiguity. I think that she takes more from him. Um, I would say that maybe Camus and Sartre took more from Nietzsche. They seem to be more of the, they seem to be more in his, uh, in his tradition. But... No, that, that, that I had never actually thought about that, that there, there might be a split within existentialism itself, uh, you know, between a Kierkegaardian approach and a Nietzschean approach. Uh, students, for those of you who don't know who Kierkegaard is, he is uh, a very famous philosopher who uh, responded to Kant uh, by saying, look, uh, there's something beyond the ethical. The ethical is, in fact, uh, a midway point or a stopping point that we none of us actually act on the basis of the universal, but rather authenticity is, is to go beyond the universal, it's like a leap of faith um, into this world of subjectivity that is like verging on the absurd. I mean, that, that, that's a kind of really cheap version of it. Um, but I, I think Dr. Dalsky is definitely onto something here that it's a, that Simone de Beauvoir's existentialism is closer to a Kierkegaardian existentialism than maybe a Nietzschean. Um, what other points of difference would you see between Nietzsche and Simone de Beauvoir? I think that you can definitely see I mean, you can definitely see the the train of thought there and this notion of the reversal of values, um, essentially taking everything that we conceive to be valuable, as Nietzsche put it, and that those are the things that actually hinder our human existence. I think that where she would branch off is her notion of situation and the way in which we interact with others, that she prioritizes that. I think that she would agree with this notion of the rejection of values that that Nietzsche puts forth, especially in something like the Antichrist, that when somebody is acting as though they are the most noble, that they could actually be the most, uh, the least virtuous. There's a line from the Antichrist that has always stuck out to me, and where he writes, "There was one Christian, and he died on the cross." So essentially, everybody, <laughs> yes. yeah, That's everybody right. chasing line, yeah. after, yeah, everyone chasing after what we society deems to be 
valuable that that can actually make you quite terrible. And in the ethics of ambiguity, which I believe you said that's what your students were reading, you can see her take on that that almost seems kind of Nietzschean where she is making that critique that if somebody who is holding on to these values can actually be the most tyrannical and the most dangerous that, that because they are rejecting the notion that these are that they are meaningful outside of themselves. But I think that where you have the distinction between Beauvoir and Nietzsche is her value of the interaction, that you learn who you are in situation. Um, you, yeah, you, you, you figure out what you're made of. And so you might have this idea of who you are, but it's not until you're interacting with the other that you actually really start to figure that out. Yeah, that the individual is never an individual alone. Or, I mean, the way I always think of Nietzsche in the cheap version of it is this is the pull yourself up by the bootstraps philosophy. Uh, whereas Simone de Beauvoir, there's, there's, you can't pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Or if you did, it's always because somebody helped you or because somebody is frustrating you that you can't do it. That we're always already in relationship um, with others, and the other is absolutely fundamentally part of whether or not my project of freedom is realized or if it's frustrated. Is that a fair assessment? I think so. And I think, especially with her work, just considering the time frame in which she was writing, that you have these two things that are going on, that you have the historical context of occupied France. So in that way, things are terribly disrupted. And so there would be this question of, of freedom and what am I made of and who am I under um, uh, under foreign power, under threat of death. I mean, the world is in complete upheaval. And then at the same time, she was an extraordinarily intelligent young woman who was essentially told in this is not what you're supposed to be doing. You're not supposed to be a thinker. This is not for you. So she has that kind of double whammy of the way in which she's interacting with the world that she's trying to define herself and in a world in which she did not create. And so she's called to to action and she's meeting that call and she gets frustrated with somebody who can't meet that call. But I think that's part of what it means to be interacting with others. And that this is the ground of freedom, is actually striving for the freedom of others, not just your own freedom. Exactly, exactly. And that's why I think the historical context is so important. Um, And by the same token, here she agrees, she and Sartre are on the same page with this. Um, But then what she needed to do was, if this is true, if this is how you define the human being, then how do you explain the situation of woman? You know, if women are human, <laughs> which I guess we are, but that's, uh, but that's, are you sure? <laughs> <laughs> let's take a poll. All right. But there's, yeah, but that's, that's the, the issue for her is how could she take that notion of freedom and then explain essentially half of, half of the population not acting free. Do you, so when I, I think about the ethics of ambiguity and the importance of uh, striving for the freedoms of others, I, uh, do you think in the ethics of ambiguity she was already thinking about the situation of women? I I think it's always I, I think it's always been there because yeah. Uh, yeah because I think that in her journals um, that there was some frustration with it that she just I don't you know what it's it's hard because then talking with Peg um, the the Beauvoir scholar that I did the 
the podcast episode with on what's it like to meet Beauvoir, that something that's really difficult about Beauvoir is that she never really admitted to her her own knowledge, her own superior knowledge, really, that here she was extremely intelligent and fighting for the rights of women. And at the same time, she would yield to the intellectual authority of somebody like Sartre. So it's kind of a bizarre situation in which she was in. But I do think that, uh, yeah, I, I mean, she describes being in the library, writing all the time. This is one of the reasons why sometimes her quotes are a little bit off is because she was always quoting from memory. You know, it's not like today where you have to look everything up and all that stuff. So um, I don't know. I think I'm trying to put myself in her in her shoes. I think she knew she was special. She was different. Right. No, it's just one of those those things that I read chapter two and, and some of the examples she gives is, is sometimes disparaging of women. But then I also think the second sex is like this as well. Right. When you read um, the chapter on women in love or the narcissist. Oh, yeah. You can see how Simone de Beauvoir has either lived herself in bad faith and is re, like re uh, trying to, to 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 kind of purge herself of it uh, via writing about it, or she herself has a touch of misogyny in her own mind's eye, regardless of the fact that she is um, a paradigmatic feminist figure. Yes, I think one of the short stories that we read for for a couple of my classes is "The Woman Destroyed," and. I warn my students that when you read Simone de Beauvoir, you know she's a feminist, but you're not going to read this, and our concept of girl power does not exist in these texts. She is hypercritical of the way in which women participate in their own oppression. She's extremely critical of it. So no, she does not paint a beautiful picture of women at all. She is extremely critical of them. So I think today, when you think about something like a feminist literature, it's more of a girl power. It's a it's a rally cry. And when you yeah. read, let's say, a, a short story like The Woman Destroyed, um, so I don't want to presuppose too much knowledge of your students here, but when you read it, it's a, it's an extremely tragic story of a woman who was caught up in being defined by others. And in yeah. that way, her existence was completely static and she yeah. wasn't free. And there are other female characters in there, which is nice because Beauvoir is able to show a breadth of, um, or I mean, a, a range of women's points of view that you can't just say here's woman and then therefore that's how she's characterized, that their women are human and they have different interests. But the main character, even the concept of being destroyed, only a thing can be t- destroyed, not a person. But this woman is choosing to, the main character is choosing to act according to the confines of tradition and it does destroy her. She's terrified by her own freedom. She's never experienced it. And this is what I find lovely about uh, Simone de Beauvoir is, I mean, the whole, uh, I guess, the foundation of the ethics of ambiguity is that we're in this constant tug of war, right? We're both and. And and unlike Sartre, I think that Simone de Beauvoir is much more amenable to this both and kind of existence, that that we're both oppressed, but also oppressing, even if it's of others, but also more importantly, in the context of of women, uh, of ourselves. And so that, yeah, I just find that this horrible, like the way that women uh, perpetuate their own oppression because they can't find any other way out, they can't find any other way of expressing their freedom uh, without doing it through the confines of a kind of bad faith. Uh, but at the same time, it's still a project, it's still an attempt to transcend that is ultimately doomed. Is that, is that yeah, kind of? Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, what you have is 
men go going out into the world literally projecting themselves every single action they are redefining themselves and whereas woman's project is herself that is one that will never work she's turning herself into a doll you know like you know painting yourself trying to defy aging all of that stuff so woman is defined by her body as opposed to projecting herself outwards and yeah so that's women doesn't in other words woman doesn't have project she's not leaving her stamp on the world at all she's constantly focused on her own appearance Exactly. So students, if you decide, so uh, just so you know, Dr. Dalski, I'm having them for unit three pick their own final text. And one of the final texts that they can read is uh, Simone de Beauvoir's The Second Sex, the introduction. And I believe uh, you have the possibility to read one or two chapters from part, later parts of The Second Sex. Uh, but in any case, what Dr. Dalski is getting at here, uh, students, is the possibility or what the situation of women is and the, the typical bad faith or the kinds of ways in which women participate or are kind of taught or conditioned to be in bad faith uh, by being identified with body or identified with a kind of subjectivity that is always frustrated, a variety of different things. And so I highly suggest if you're interested in in feminism or the first, I'm sorry, really second wave uh, of feminism with regards to Simone de Beauvoir, uh, you picked to read in your unit three, uh, the second sex. Sorry about that, Dr. Dalsky, a little, little business there. <laughs> That's okay. Um, uh, so here I want to actually segue to, since we're talking about uh, oppression, uh, one of the big concerns of my students was actually, how does Simone de Beauvoir justify the oppression of oppressors? That's a good question. <laughs> and I was going through the text and I was looking at it. And again, I think that we have to take into account the historical context. So she's talking about a type of revolt here. And I it's interesting now reading it and thinking, thinking about, okay, this is she's lived through a war, through an occupied occupied time. There's lots of references to Nazism, how scary that must have been. So there might be a different concept of how to handle the oppressor than what we would have today. And so I think that the way it would be justified is that if the oppressor is believing that they are free, let me, let me, I want to make sure I have my thoughts correct here. The oppressor wants to say, Hey, you know, if I can be free, then I'm free to be oppressive. And she is saying, no, you don't have that freedom to do that. And I think in some ways we can see that today, sometimes with the dialogue of politically correct, you know, people say like, I don't want to be told what I say. You mean I can't use that word anymore? And it's like, no, please go ahead. Let's know <laughs> what's on your mind. Um, but there's there's a part of what she's saying is that when somebody is trying to say, oh, yay, I can be free. That's what it means. That's what your philosophy is saying. Therefore, I can oppress all of these people. And she is saying the exact opposite, that that's not an exercise in freedom and oppression. And so I think that by becoming the oppressors, what it means is to restrict somebody's desire for oppressing, which oh. is a type of restriction on somebody. I, Isn't there a kind of Kantian element in this? I, I think, okay, so <laughs> I, I see Kant is such an important thinker. I mean, in terms of ethics, that it would be impossible to say that she wasn't influenced by that. Or Sartre, for that matter, when you read No Exit, there's a kind of 
inverted Kantian um, kingdom of ends and no exit um, right. when, when you look at it that way. And so there's no question that there would be an influence there. It's just that it can't be um, a categorical imperative. So yeah, so there is this kind of casting out into the world that you can only be free when other people are free. Um, but she, by her own stance and by Sartre's stance as well, that they can't commit it to be a categorical imperative. It's a matter of either living authentically or inauthentically. Yeah, and I mean, the difference too, right? Like, so, like, it, it, there is a sense in which the human being, like, I, I, I strive for the freedom of others because the other, it's not necessarily because they're universally a dignified, rational agent, right? So the, the basis of the categorical imperative for Kant um, and what freedom is would be different than for someone to Beauvoir. So that, yes, I, I act for the freedom of others from a uh, Simone de Beauvoir's perspective, not because of some categorical duty, but because of a recognition of the, the personal, individual, uh, ambiguous, ambiguous, yeah, this person that exists in this tug of war uh, instead of the universal, dignified, rational agent. Does that, does that seem fair, too? I think so. I but mean... It's, it's still Kantian or neo-Kantian, but yeah, upside down. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's there. I mean, Kant's not... He's not wrong it's a very it's a very good <laughs> it's a very good way to talk about ethics i think what is what is missing for the existentialists is they want to reject this idea of an absolute that absolute. there is no there is no such thing and so right. in rejecting that and actually that's one of the reasons why she came forward and wrote this book was because there was this criticism of existentialism that if you get rid of the rules then you have no moral theory and so right. she needed to come back and address that that there is a morality there that in fact, and maybe this is a little bit Nietzschean, that in fact, the notion of the way people have been holding on to morality is actually immoral because it's a denial of responsibility. So for example, removing God from the picture, um, that would be that seems like it would be immoral right off the bat. Even today, people associate atheism with immorality. And what Beauvoir and company are doing is saying that that it's terribly distra- distressing to remove God from the picture, but no one is in charge. Look around. No one is in charge here, which means that we are in charge. But the more that you hold on to the idea that somebody else is in charge, the more you are letting go of responsibility for creating the world in which you are living. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you, Gwen. Um, I have a couple, more, one more question, but I, I got to wrap this up. Um, uh, <laughs> but one of the students, uh, comp- like said, you know, trying to, they were trying to wrestle with this, this, it's okay to oppress the oppressor. And they applied, like, do, do they, do you use Mill's greatest happiness principle here? Like, do, like what kind of calculus is being done to determine whether or not somebody, uh, is worthy of being oppressed because they themselves are an oppressor? <sighs> I know it's, it's hard. a good I question. Didn't yeah. It's a good question. I think and 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 honestly I mean the existentialist the atheistic existentialist framework for ethics is a difficult one because right. they throw out all the rules. 
because they reject all of it. And so whether or not, you know, I always tell my students whether or not you, here is what they're doing to defend that there is actually an ethics with atheistic existentialism. If you believe, if you buy it or not, that's totally up to you, but this is what they are saying. And so I think that with that question, what um, the question is still trying to find some sort of an underscoring um, absolute. Ooh, yeah. Is is trying to is trying to find that and it it won't it won't work there. But I think that I think that with Beauvoir, um, it couldn't be utilitarian because the calculation would wouldn't work for existentialism. You know, Iris Murdoch, the writer and philosopher, was highly critical of the existentialist tradition for this, of Sartre and Beauvoir, saying that they were unable to come up with it. She said that they were unable to come up with a viable ethical theory. She was more of a Kantian when you read her stuff. But um, I think that, I don't think that with, I don't think that with oppressing the oppressor, I don't think that what she means is that if somebody injures you, you go ahead and injure them back. I don't think that it's a matter of violence in that way. I think it is a matter of of uh, restricting somebody's uh, belief in what they think freedom is. If freedom means um, injuring other people, then you have well, to restrict them. Things. Right. Then you have to stop that. And that might be done um, with a physical restraint or something that, you know, that is quite tough. And Again, I would just remind the students that she is going through, she's in World War II, surrounded by Nazis, you know, that that's what's, that's what's at stake there. So I think that her concept of stopping the oppressor um, is, a bi- is a big one. I mean, even in the ethics of ambiguity, when she traveled to the States and she could see what was going on in the South, um, she also was, you know, very mindful of that, of the oppressors using the idea of nature, in order to justify an oppression. And she rejected the concept of nature. So I would imagine, and she could see that there was that, that violence going on in there, there in the States as well. So in order to halt that, there might be need to be more than a finger wag, I guess. Like if you had one thing that you wanted a group of 35 kids who were all evacuated from Florence uh, <laughs> in a moment's notice to know about Simone de Beauvoir, what would it be? I think that Simone de Beauvoir, I would get to know her memoirs in addition to her literature and her philosophy. And that keep in mind in reading all three of those parts that she is a living philosopher. She's not somebody who just went away into a study and just wrote some texts that she was a living, breathing, constantly evolving and thinking philosopher and interacting with people. And that's something that makes her very, very special. Didn't she love to hike? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I love thinking about that. Um, that's so awesome. Okay. Well, Dr. Dalski, uh, thank you so much for taking your time today. Students, give a round of applause. Yeah, that was so awesome. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you. This uh, is right. exciting during quarantine. I get to talk about Beauvoir. I, I appreciate that. <laughs> really, you've All done right, me well, the favor. No, no, you, you know. <laughs> All right, thank you so much. Um, bye, guys. Uh, so yeah, start on your Socratic Dialogue blogs, and hopefully you guys will do a Marco Polo, and I'll see you there. If not, I look forward to reading your final papers in Unit 3. All right, good night. Bye. Bye.